C.T. Studd said, in every heart there is a throne and a cross, and somebody's on both. If you're still on the throne, you left Jesus on the cross. But if Jesus is on the throne, you'll have to be on the cross. I was sitting here thinking about what it's going to be like someday when we all kneel at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus at the throne of God. And I've got to tell you, I mean, we've had a lot of fun tonight, but this is really sobering. I love your theme. The word eternity is only found once in your Bible. It's in the book of Isaiah. But the theme is woven through the whole of Scripture. And in fact, it is seen most vividly at the end of your Bible. We're going to take a trip tonight. We're not going back in time. We're going forward. How far forward? I have no idea. The reality is Jesus could come before I finish preaching tonight. Now, this has been a great youth conference. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all of us being in this room in the trumpet sounds? And the Lord Jesus steps out on a cloud, and everybody that knows the Lord in an instant is gone from this place. That could happen any moment we may be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. 1,000 years from this second, you will be somewhere. I didn't come tonight to tell you where you're going to be because I don't know you. You'll have to answer that question and the Holy Spirit will have to show you. But 1,000 years from this night, every one of us will be in eternity somewhere. And the only thing that matters tonight is what matters for eternity. So tonight, the trip we're going to take, we're going to step across the threshold just for a second. We can't go far because the Lord doesn't tell us too much on the other side. And I'm not going to try to fill in the gaps. I'm not God, and I'm not going to go beyond what God says. But did you know that in the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the New Testament, the Lord pulls back the curtain of heaven and for a moment shows you the instant that all of us step into the presence of a holy God in eternity. It's found in Revelation 5. Would you open your Bible there? If you go to the end of your Bible and go back just a few pages, you'll be there. Because Revelation 5, I think, is one of the most fascinating descriptions in all of Scripture of what it's going to be like someday. It's only 14 verses long, and in a moment, I'm going to read all 14 verses without pause, without interruption, without any comment. And I want you to read it with a little sanctified imagination. And I want you to pray as we read it that God will pull back not just heaven, but pull back your heart and give you a glimpse of eternity. We're living in Revelation. Lift your head and look at me once you found Revelation 5. At this second, we are living in the book of Revelation. We are living in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. That's when the, the church is going on. Christ is still building his church. By the way, I sat up here tonight and looked across this auditorium. All the churches represented here, all the young people excited about the Lord. And it encouraged my faith because it reminded me that God is not finished in this world. I know it's bad. I know it's bad. But when the Bible said evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse, he never said the gospel power would wax any less and less. And at this moment, Jesus Christ is still building his church. The gospel still works, and the Holy Spirit is still on the move. There are still some young people in our generation who really want to know God. That encourages me. 
But when you come to Revelation chapter 4, a big door swings on a little hinge because the Bible says in Revelation 4 verse 1, a door opens in heaven and a voice says, come up hither. And Revelation chapter 4 is a picture of the next thing on God's calendar. Do you know what it is? It is the rapture of the church. It's the time when God calls time. And that will happen. Let me tell you something really exciting. You, look at me, you could be on the welcoming committee for the Son of God. Somebody said, man, I'd love to have been one of the original disciples, not me. I'd like to be one of the last disciples. I'd like, I'd like to be here, not when Jesus came into Bethlehem. I'd like to be here when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. How many of you are with me on that? Yes? And I know, I know some of you think, well, I want to get my driver's license first. And I want to get married first. And I got big plans. Let me just tell you, buddy, if Jesus shows up before all that happens, you're not going to miss anything because God has something so much better planned on the other side than anything this world has to offer. Jesus is coming back for his own. When you come to Revelation 5, the rapture has taken place, and we are now at the greatest assembly that has ever happened. You think this meeting's something? You haven't seen anything like what it's going to be like when all of God's children get round the throne. Look at Revelation 5 and verse number 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man, no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Would you take your pen, take your pen, and mark the last phrase of verse number 13. Look at it. Forever and ever. And then mark the last phrase of verse number 14. Look familiar. What does it say, class? Forever and ever. And ever. And right in the margin of your Bible, next to verse 13 and 14, the word eternity. You might not write it as beautifully as Arthur Stace did. You, you may not write it in beautiful copper plate text, but write it down in big bold boxcar letters and underline it two or three times and put an exclamation point after it because what you're reading in Revelation 5, if you know Jesus, someday you're going to live. We're going to be there as surely as we are here in eternity. And this is what has captured my attention the last few days in Revelation 5. That when you get to eternity, it would seem the only thing anybody is concerned about is Jesus. Do you understand what we just read in Revelation 5? Like, honestly, all, all eyes on Jesus. Every knee knelt before Jesus. Every ear opened to Jesus. Every heart in harmony with Jesus. Every hand raised in glory to Jesus. Every mind consumed with great thoughts of Jesus. Almost like when you get to eternity, the only thing that matters is Jesus. See, tonight you're sitting here trying to imagine yourself in eternity. I want you to forget you for a second. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. Matter of fact, back up to how the chapter begins. There's a book. God's got a lot of books. I'm, I'm preaching out of one of them tonight. How many of you know this is God's book? Yes? Well, God's got a lot of books. He's got a whole library of books. He's, he's got a book called the Lamb's Book of Life that has the name in it of every person that is actually a believer. I wonder, is your name written there? See, God keeps good records a whole lot better than your school does or your church does. That's the Lamb's book of life. The Bible says he has books of records that he will open on the judgment day and people will be judged out of those books. There's a whole lot of books, but the book in Revelation 5 is a very unique book because this is what God planned to do in the future. And may I say, this was a glimpse at eternity. And the Bible said, nobody knows what's in eternity but our Lord. Nobody has any right to tell you what the future holds except the one who holds the future himself. And I've marked in my Bible in verse number 3, no man. Would you mark that in your Bible? No man. And in verse number 4, again, a second time, no man. But Charlie didn't know what I was preaching tonight, and I didn't know what he was preaching. I love how the Holy Spirit has a way of connecting things in his servants and in his word. This is the Lord's message to all of us tonight. Listen to me with your heart just a minute, young people. We are nothing, and Christ is everything. 
We're balls of clay that God breathed life into. We're black-hearted, hell-deserving sinners in desperate need of the mercy of God. We are nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we get pretty enamored with people. I'm going to be honest with you. Even as a preacher, sometimes you come into meetings and people expect the preacher's going to do something. The preacher's going to say something. Look, you're listening to one of the Lord's little postal boys tonight. That's, that's all I am. I, I got nothing for you. But the Lord has everything. This, this is not about any man up here. And it's not about what you can do. And it's not about what somebody else can do for you. It is all about the person of Jesus Christ. When you get to Revelation 5, it's like time recedes and eternity opens. You get to Revelation 5, every man fades into the background. We talk about people being great men. I think we need to stop talking so much about great men and start talking about a great God again. That's what we need to do. See, when God gets big, everybody gets small. When, when you get a glimpse of the throne and realize who God is, suddenly every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5 and eternity is all about Christ. Now hold on to your seat. You're going to see him. You will with your own eyes see the Lord Jesus Christ. What if that were tonight? What if you knew that at midnight tonight you were going to see Jesus face to face? I mean... At midnight tonight, we're having a meeting with Jesus. You're, you're not just going to see him. You're going to go be with him for eternity. What, what would you do in the next couple of hours? What, what would make a difference to you? I'll tell you one thing. You wouldn't care what anybody else on your row was thinking right now. It wouldn't matter to you what was trending on social media or, or what the fad is or what's acceptable in culture and society. None of that would matter if you knew you were going to see the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. But I want you to know, you may see him at any moment. And when we get into eternity, how shall we see Christ? I'll give you three things, and they all come from Revelation 5. No, write them down. Number one, in eternity, you're going to see Christ wounded. Wounded? Mm -hmm. do, you remember, do you remember Thomas saying, if I don't see the prince of the nails in his hand, can't thrust my hand into, into the place in his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus walked through that door and said, all right, big boy, here you go, look. And Thomas did not have to touch them. He just simply said, my Lord and my God. Someone has said the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on the body of Jesus. Do you understand when we get there, we shall see that our Lord was wounded. That's what the Bible says. Look what the Bible says in verse, in verse number 6. The Bible says, there stood a lamb as it had been slain. Look at verse number 9. For thou wast slain. You, you, you're going to see the lamb that was slain. Revelation chapter 1 verse number 7 says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. All the nations of the earth shall wail because of him. Listen, listen to me. When you see the wounds on Jesus, it'll be one of two responses. You'll either be wailing or you'll be worshiping. And it will be determined by whether you know those scars were made for your soul's salvation. Those who've rejected Christ, they're going to see him. He's not going to have to announce who he is. They will know. You understand someday you're going to see Adolf Hitler on his knees? Every knee. 
Every president, every prime minister, every dictator, every Hollywood actor, every blasphemer, every supposedly powerful politician, every scorner in your school, everybody that's influencing you right now on social media, someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if you wait till then, it's too late. On that day when those of us who know Jesus and love him see the scars, we will know that those scars were not for him. Those scars were for us. Those scars were for my sin. The hymn writer said, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, Jesus was wounded for me. Look at his hands. Look at his feet. You can't see it tonight through eyes of flesh, but you're going to look through the lens of Scripture and catch it with the eye of faith. Someday you will see the Lamb that was wounded for your soul's salvation. Count Zinzendorf, as a 15 or 16-year-old boy, saw a picture of the artist's rendering of Calvary, and beneath it this caption, All this have I done for thee, what hast thou done for me? And that set in motion something not just in his own heart, but something that literally touched the world. The entire Moravian missionary movement grew out of one teenage boy that got a glimpse of Jesus and what Christ had done for him. Would to God tonight the Holy Ghost would open some of your eyes and some of your hearts and minds to get a glimpse of Christ. He's not just a subject for Sunday. He's not just a chorus we sing about. He is a real person. He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He gave His very blood so you wouldn't have to go to hell. We shall see the Lamb wounded. But I must tell you, if if that's all we saw, that's pretty depressing. I love this. Go back to verse number 6. This is interesting to me because the lamb that was slain is also standing. How many of you know dying and standing usually don't go together? Look carefully at verse number 6 because the lamb that had been slain, the Bible says, is standing in the midst of the throne. Would you like to know why he's standing? He's standing because the same one that died got up and came out of that grave alive forevermore. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Joseph Smith, and all the rest of them still dead, buried in the grave. But my Christ is alive forevermore. And he doesn't just live in heaven. He lives in my heart. Does he live in yours? Write down a second truth. When we see Christ in eternity, we will not only see Christ wounded, we will see Christ worthy. Worthy of what, preacher? Yes. All the above. See, Jesus is not worthy of something because he lacks anything, because he needs anything. He is worthy of everything because everything rightfully belongs to him. Take a breath, please. Isn't that nice? Let's all do it again for fun. Take another breath. That's God's gift to you. Look at me, please. Every good thing you have, the Lord has allowed you to have. Most of you don't know me. I'm going to tell you, I know me. And Jesus knows me better than I know me. And I know I'm a sinful man. I'm worthy of hell. That's what I'm worthy of. And so are you. But Christ, Christ is the perfect one. 
worthy of all. Some of you are trying to negotiate with God. You better get off that nonsense. The Lord doesn't rent, he buys. You are his rightfully by creation. That's Revelation chapter 4. But when you get to Revelation chapter 5, you are his rightfully by redemption. He bought and paid for your soul with his own precious blood. And we're going to keep it to ourselves? Dear God in heaven, deliver us from this self-centered mentality. Let's get our eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Christ is worthy. Can I show you something beautiful? Look at verse number six. The Bible says he's got seven horns. Somebody says, I don't like that. This is a picture of something. Mark it in your Bible. Seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits. See, seven, seven, seven. Seven's the number of perfection. Let me tell you who Jesus is. He's the perfect one. Look at the description here. Horns in the Bible are always a picture of strength. Let me tell you about my Jesus. My Jesus has perfect strength. You may feel weak, but Jesus is plenty strong. Look at it. Seven eyes. What's that mean? That means he has perfect knowledge. The eyes of the Lord running to and fro throughout the whole earth, beholding the evil and the good. Look, I'm looking at you on the outside, but Jesus is looking at you on the inside. He has perfect knowledge. And the seven spirits, he has his perfect presence everywhere. There is no place you can go that God is not already there. There is no circumstance back home that you're dealing with that God is not right there in the midst of it all because He is the perfect Son of God and He is worthy of all glory. Can I show you something interesting? Come across, would you please, to verse number 12. Did you notice that list I read to you a moment ago? Power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Look at it. Seven things given back to Him. I love this. You know why we give all this back to Him? Because He's given everything to us. We will see Christ wounded and we will see Christ worthy. I love this word in verse number five. He prevailed. Let me just tell you about Jesus. He is a victorious Savior. How many of you saved and know it? Raise your hand, please. Then you're on the winning side, so stop moping your way to the rapture. Stop grumbling your way to heaven. And realize you belong to Jesus and he belongs to you and he has already prevailed. You go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, the first promise of the Messiah. God looked Satan in the face. Remember that old serpent, the devil? And he said to him, my son is going to come and when my son's going to come, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. Let me ask you a question. Which is worse, a heel bruise or a head wound? You better believe it. Nobody ever died from a heel bruise. It might hurt a little bit, and you limp along, but it gets better. But you have a head wound, friends. That's mortal. Listen to me. Satan may have nipped at the heels of the lovely Son of God when he walked this planet, but I want you to know three days after he came out of that grave, Jesus put his nail-pierced foot securely on the head of that old serpent, and he is the victor. He has prevailed. And we shall see Christ as the worthy one. I love the fact that for every principle, he gives us a picture. Look, please, if you want to see him wounded, he says he's the lamb. And if you want to see him worthy, he's the lion. They're both right here. There's one thing you must see at the end of the chapter. Someday you will not only see him wounded and worthy, you will see him worshipped. And here the picture is the Lord. See, two people can't sit on the throne 
of your life at the same time. It's impossible. How many chess players are out here? Wave at me, please. All you really smart people, chess players. How many checkers players? How many of you don't know how to play anything? Would you raise your hand, please? Yeah. I'm a checkers man. My son, Grant, taught me how to play chess. He's pretty good at it. I learned something. Never play with the people who teach you to play because they never teach you everything. And I lose every time I play with him. It's awful. Chess is weird to me. All the, all the pieces are different. They all move in a different direction. The queen is stronger than the king. That, that is not right as a preacher. But there's a primary difference between checkers and chess. May I tell you what it is? In checkers, the, the aim is everybody get to the other end of the board, whatever it takes, whatever you've got to do, you just got to get to the other end of the board, look at your opponent and say, king me. Right? And as many times as you can say, king me, crown me, the better off you are. How many of you are still with me? Yes? But watch this, please. That's not the goal in chess. In chess, there's already a king. And there's only one of them. And every other piece on the board is there to take care of the king. Listen to me. The only thing that matters is the king. You all know the problem with some of you in this room? Some of you are playing checkers with your life instead of chess. Some of you are trying to get a little further along so you can finally say, that's me, I'm the man, I'm the man. No, no man, no man, only the God man, only the perfect man, only the Lord Jesus. Some of you are trying to get somewhere so you can say, king me, crown me, I'm the man, I'm the woman. No, you're not. I want to tell you tonight on the authority of the word of God, there's already a king, there's not room for another. He's the king of eternity. He's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of earth. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his name is Jesus Christ. And in the end, only Jesus will be worshipped. Come to the end of the chapter and look at it, please. Everybody's on their face. In fact, that's what the word worship here means. The word literally means to be laid out on your face at someone's feet. Look, please. That's true worship. So people prance their way to an altar and pop their bubble gum, talk about Jesus. I want you to know they've missed something. And I love the soberness in this meeting. I love the serious emphasis in this meeting because I'm going to tell you what we need. We need a generation of young people who don't have a comfortable, convenient kind of American cultural Christianity which isn't worth anything. We need some young men and young women who actually get a glimpse of a holy God and realize this world is not their home. They're just passing through. Eternity's over the next horizon. The throne is just over the bend and they start living soberly in the presence of Jesus Christ. The song these girls just sang before I preached about the lordship of Jesus. Look, I'm glad you know something about Jesus, but I'm asking you tonight, have you yielded to the absolute authority of Christ in your life? Because what you're going to do someday is worship him. Maybe we ought to get a practice now. As I've been meditating in this chapter, I realized there are three things on this planet tonight that will be in eternity, and they're all in Revelation 5. Outside of the Bible, we know the Word of God forever settled in heaven. This is connected to God's character, so that doesn't change. 
There's three things in this chapter that 1,000 years from tonight will still be in heaven. May I show them to you? Because maybe they, maybe they should matter to us now. Here they are. Look at verse number 8. In verse number 8, there's prayer. The prayers of the saints. Some of you think God only hears your youth pastor's prayers. I want you to know, kids, God will answer your prayers. And I love the sweet season of prayer that we had a moment ago. Oh, oh, young man, young lady, if I could help you with this. Do you understand your prayers will get more done in this earth and for eternity than any other thing? May the Lord help us raise an army of young people who know how to talk to God and walk with God and understand something about prayer. It's like incense, the odors rising up to God. God says, I like that. Do you understand you'll meet your prayers in heaven? That's fascinating to me. I don't know if you plan to do this or not, but in the prayer time, you just said, everybody pray for somebody you know that's lost. I got a neighbor that needs Jesus. The Holy Spirit brought it into my mind. I'm praying for salvation. I wonder someday in heaven if I will meet that man in heaven and it will be connected to the season of prayer we had here. I wonder. Some of you... You've about given up on what you've been praying for. You've about given up on your family being saved. You've about given up on, on God doing something in your school and with your friends for the glory of God. This is not the time to let up your prayers. This is the time to intensify your prayers. We're getting ready to meet God in eternity. There's a second thing here. Not only prayer, but praise. You see it in verse number 8. They got harps. In verse number 9, they're singing a song. It's a new song. How many of you play an instrument? Any instrument? Would you raise your hand, please? Let me ask it differently. How many of you play an instrument you could play in church? Would you raise your hand, please? Then you should. And the rest of you, if you can, you ought to work at one. I wish I would have early on. How many of you can sing? Would you raise your hand? How many of you are like me and you only sing really well in the shower by yourself? Would you raise your hand? Man, I got some good tunes going in there, you know. Do you listen to me? You may never stand on the platform of your church and sing, but you ought to have a song in your heart. You don't learn to praise God someday. You learn to praise God today. See, God inhabits the praises of his people. Hey, young people, when was the last time you got down on your face and you didn't ask God for anything? No, no. When was the last time you told the Lord you loved him? You so that? That's kind of weird. He's a real person and he died for you, didn't he? Actually, the right way for you to say it is this way. I love you too. Because we love him because he first loved us. You want a generation that has the power of God on them? Let a generation learn what it means to praise God again. They'll start living conscious of the presence of Almighty God because you enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. You're thankful to him. You bless his name. Old Lester Roloff said sometimes you can praise your way through things you can't pray your way through. Some of you are having a hard time right now. There are kids in this room who have cancer. There are young people in this room whose parents are splitting up. There are some of you who have difficult things back home. I'm not minimizing any of that. I'm telling you God is with you in the midst of that, and you can praise him, and as you praise him, you will get a fresh glimpse of who your God is. Well, there's one more thing in this passage. Please don't miss this one. This is really important. When we get to eternity, you won't just, in the presence of Christ, meet your prayers and your praises, but you'll meet people. Eternal souls. 
who here heard the gospel and were saved. In fact, everybody put your eyes on verse number 9 because the Bible says they were redeemed by the blood of Jesus out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. All this talk about equality. May I just tell you, the most equal thing on earth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's get equal tonight, all right? We're all just a bunch of sinners. And we all deserve hell and Jesus died for every man and God loves all people and whosoever will may come and everybody gets saved the same way. That sounds pretty equal to me. What do you think? And some of you in this room tonight are lost. You've played the game pretty good. Nobody knows but you and God, but God knows. And you're lost. You're sitting in this crowd, just like Judas sat in the crowd, one of the crowd, but he went to hell, and you're lost. You know what you need? You need to meet the Lamb tonight. You need to come to Jesus and settle the matter of your soul's salvation. This, this is not the time to live with a question mark. This is the time to let the Holy Ghost make an exclamation point in your life. Drive a stake a mile deep in the ground about your soul's salvation tonight, kids. I was flying back from a camp in Louisiana the other day. Pastor, I've never done this. In all the hundreds and hundreds of flights I've been on week after week after week, I've never done it. I bought a ticket, and I didn't pay enough attention. I got on the flight in Louisiana. I landed in Charlotte. I was late. I was flying to Wilmington, Delaware to preach. I ran to the Charlotte airport. Flight delayed. Got to the gate just in time to see Wilmington. Praise God, I made it. Got on the plane, sat down, plane took off. Businessman next to me, a Christian man, we started talking, and he said, yeah, I'm going to the beach. I said, oh, that's good. We flew a little bit, and the pilot came on and said, 32 minutes, we'll be in Wilmington. I thought, 32 minutes? That's longer than that from Charlotte to Delaware. Flight attendant stand next to me. I said, I hate to ask you a dumb question. I said, where are we going? She said, Wilmington. I said, I know. Which Wilmington? She said, Wilmington, North Carolina. Do you know what the difference in the airport code is between the two airports? Wilmington, Delaware is ILG, and Wilmington, North Carolina is ILM. Only somebody in the government could come up with something like that. And at 8.30 at night, I'm standing in an airport that was shut down, nobody working, no hotel, and no place to go, standing there like a dummy because I thought I knew where I was going. I'll tell you what's going to be bad. It's going to be bad when a whole bunch of people went to youth conference, went to youth group, went to a Christian school, went to church, end up going to hell when they died because they didn't know Jesus. Tonight's your night. And then there's a whole army of kids. I mean, this is unbelievable. There's a whole army of kids in here that need to get on their faces tonight and say, I know I'm saved, but I don't want to just say I'm saved and have enough religion to go to heaven and not go to hell someday. I want Jesus to have all there is of me, and I want him to do all he wants to do in my life. I want to live in the presence of the king. A few months ago, one of my dearest friends on earth was killed serving the Lord overseas. It was very dear to Brother Charlie, too. I wish I could share more about the details. This time I can't. But he's with the Lord. Talked to his wife this week. The time I think about him, just, it's like eternity comes fresh again. He was my age. I talked to him 25 minutes before he was killed. We were talking about a gospel thing, and he said to me, I'll never forget this. 
last words he said. I think the last words he said were, I love you, like a brother. But the last thing he said to me about what we were talking about, he said, Scott, we just got to do more. Keeps ringing in my ears because he can't do more. No, he's, he's already there. And, and, and I don't feel sorry for him. No, he's at the throne already. He beat me there. He's in the biggest worship service already in progress. I'll join him. But I'm still here. Why am I here? Why God let you live? Hey, somebody your age didn't live today. Why'd God let you live? Why am I here? Must mean there's an eternal purpose. We got to do more. My friend's motto was something he had learned from the Moravians. I told you about the Moravian Missionary Movement. Long ago, there were two young Moravian men who heard of an island of the sea that had never heard of Jesus, had never heard of Jesus. Think of that. The only people that ever went on that island were slaves. And these two young single Moravian men sold themselves into slavery with no hope of ever returning from the, from the island for the sole purpose of going to that island so that everybody on that island would at least have one chance to hear about Jesus. And on the day they left, they walked the plank up to a ship and their friends were waving and weeping and telling them goodbye. And they turned around and with a smile on their face, raised their hand toward heaven. And one of them said this, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. You know what I think? I think Jesus is worthy of everything. And don't you tell me you're willing to die for him if you won't even live for it. Don't tell me you'll go halfway around the world and serve God. You won't take your stand for Jesus tonight. I'm telling you in eternity, the only thing that will matter is that which is connected to Christ. And that's not just true in eternity. That's true tonight. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me and sit very quiet around the building?